All right, welcome everyone uh, to this talk on uh, time preference theory and its critics. Uh, if you don't know, I'm going to inform you that um, interest theory, well, at least capital and interest theory, <coughs> is a gigantic uh, mess. You know, it's like uh, Roger Garrison likes to say, they're, they're thorny issues of capital and interest, right? And because of this, uh, different uh, scholars are, it, come from the, uh, you know, different places and, and then we're all talking past each other. We get a lot of this, more so I think in this field than perhaps in others. <clears throat> so when it's like this, when a debate is, uh, or a literature is like this, it's always best I think to go back to basic principles and start from there and see if that provides some clarification to some of the issues that then uh, arise. And so that's what, uh, what I've attempted to do in this talk. <clears throat> and uh, let's begin then with just uh, perhaps the most basic question we could ask, what is interest? What are the different uh, theories trying to explain? And we'll see of course that they're not trying to explain the same thing. And if you're not trying to explain the same thing, then when you talk with someone who's thinks you're, you mean one thing by interest and they mean another, you're just going to talk past each other, right? You're not really getting to the, to the nub of the debate. <clears throat> so I've broken this down in, uh, into the following categories. I'll make some brief comments about each one as we go uh, down the list. So there's some who define interest as what we might call an in-kind uh, return on production, their own rates of interest. <clears throat> of course, this is the... Uh, sort of standard neoclassical treatment of interest theory, right? The canonical presentation by Irving Fisher, where you have this eclectic view where uh, time preference determines the marginal rate of substitution between present goods and future goods, and, um, and then technical and production considerations determine the marginal rate of transformation between present goods and future goods. And then it's just like an indifference curve analysis, right? Where you, uh, marginal rate of transformation is usually like a production possibilities frontier and then you get time preference and difference curves and you just maximize utility, you just choose right along the possible ways in which you can uh, transform present goods into the future goods. And then it's basically thought, although again you could model this differently and have nuances and improvements and what have you, but it's basically held that the uh, marginal rate of transformation uh, occurs through capital. <coughs> And so, so that's the role of capital, cap, or the ro maybe I should say the role of capital accumulation and saving and investing is to sort of accumulate a stock of capital and then with that stock you can eat, by accumulating more, you could transfer more to the future from the present or less to the future from the present and <clears throat> so on and so forth. <clears throat> so within this theory, uh, time preference refers to something different from what is meant in the Austrian uh, group. Time preference here uh, refers to whether or not people desire to smooth out their flow of consumption intertemporally. If they want the same present consumption as future consumption, that would be called zero time preference. If they want to skew it toward the future, that would be positive time preference. And if they want to skew it toward the present, that would be called negative time preference. That's just what they mean by time preference. They mean intertemporal consumption uh, choice, right? <clears throat> so when they, when they speak, you know, I've read papers and mainstream economists criticizing Mises for his theory of time preference, where they don't even understand what Mises is saying by time preference. That's not what Mises means by time preference. By the way, I, I should say as an aside, that's not that Mises and the Austrians have no theory of intertemporal consumption. That, that's not the issue. They just use the phrase time preference to refer to the trade-off between the two, right? So it's a little bit more nuanced or, uh, maybe complicated is the right word. It's a little bit more involved uh, than that. And then from Irving Fisher, uh, you get Frank Knight. And Frank Knight very famously wrote uh, an article criticizing Fisher. <clears throat> and he said, well, actually, uh, Fisher gives too much credence to the time preference side of this, of this uh, d determination of the of barter interest rate, right? This, this interest rate will always be in terms of goods, the go goods ratio, present goods, future goods ratio. He says, actually, this, uh, this marginal rate of transformation it would be done under constant costs. Just like all production, he thought, 
would be done under constant cost. You know, he had this Smithian notion of the relationship between the long-run price and the short-run price. And so Knight argued that if you look at the production of any good, since it's produced by constant cost, it's sure demand, you know, subjective value and demand could push the price up above those costs for a little while, but then there'd be this uh, entrepreneurial entry and production and so on. In the long run, the price would gravitate back to the, to the cost of production. And so in the long run, what really matters uh, uh, is a cost of production and not uh, subjective value. So he, he holds the same view then about the role of time preferences. Yeah, sure, sure, time preferences could temporarily uh, increase uh, or, or decrease for that matter. It could change and increase or decrease the marginal rate of transformation. But you know, if you think of this diagrammatically, the marginal rate of transformation is a, like a budget constraint, straight line. And so no matter what time preference did, right, you would always eventually come back to an, uh, a tangency on that straight line. And so this, this is uh, uh, Frank Knight's view. And it, it, in order to have this notion of constant costs transforming present goods into future goods, Knight had this, uh, uh, you know, famously had this concept of a, a perpetual capital stock, right? With this capital stock that just automatically somehow increases by this marginal rate of transformation, you know, generating these additional future goods at a certain rate. And, and the, whole, the whole theory then uh, revolves around that. So that's what he means by the interest rate, right? It's not what we mean by the interest rate. It's not what we're, we're not interested in the uh, barter exchange ratio between future goods and present goods. It's not what we're trying to explain. And so it's not a criticism of our theory, uh, you know, to bring this up, right? That's the point. We're just talking past each other. And then the, the, the sort of uh, reductio ad absurdum of this uh, uh, neoclassical view is found in Paul Samuelson, where Samuelson says, look, time preference can't affect the, uh, this barter exchange ratio between present and future goods at all. It's, it's not even it can knock it off uh, its physical rate uh, in the short run. It can't even do that. And he proves this with a, with a one good model, right? So he has a one good, well, if you have a one good model, it's hard to, hard to integrate any sort of subjective value uh, element into the, into the physical rate of production, right? It's hard to alter it with, with any sort of subjective element, right? So, so th you, you get this, and Samuelson thinks this is a, you know, a knockdown argument against a, a kind of Misesian time preference theory of the interest rates, just not quite so. It's just you know, talking past each other. Now, let's turn, and I don't want to talk any more about that, uh, that element. You know, that, that, that's a big field, and we could spend a lot of time on that. But I, I want to turn to uh, more uh, views that are more related to the Austrian view, more, more close to it, and especially in uh, Bumbav work. <clears throat> uh, so Bumbav work, Interestingly, is a kind of halfway the way I've organized this is kind of a halfway house between the neoclassical and and the pure time preference theory uh, that we find in Mises, Rothbard, Fetter, and so on, because Bumbavork defines the uh, interest rate as the price spread between present goods and future goods. Right? This is a critical uh, point uh, in this debate. How do, you def how do you define the interest rate? Is it the monetary value of buying present goods relative to the monetary value of future goods? This is what Bumbavar says. And then he says that rate is completely determined by time preference. And all the, all the three causes work through our subjective uh, assessments, even the uh, objective uh, technical cause it's a choice variable for us, right? Remember, he, he argues that we, uh, an entrepreneur prefers present goods, that is uh, to have, uh, I should say, uh, producer goods sooner, uh, because by, uh, if that happens, the, the uh, entrepreneur can set about longer production processes than he could if he had to wait for a period of time to get those producer goods. If he waits and engages in a production process that finishes at the same time, then it has to be shorter and less productive. And of course, uh, other things equal, he wants more production, right? So he's choosing that, right, as a uh, 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 element of uh, his demand for present money, uh, you know, demand for present goods through buying them with money. So that's the idea. 
By the way, just as an aside, I'll say that uh, those of you who've read in this literature know this, that Bob Murphy also criticizes Bumbavrk for this. This is what he says is the great error uh, Bumbavrk <coughs> makes, that you, you cannot correctly conceive of the interest rate as the um, uh, price array of present goods versus future goods. If you do this, you get into all sorts of uh, logical conundrums. And, and basically, Murphy's, at least the second part of his dissertation, is just going through all the, all the problems that this generates you know, logically. And we'll mention some of these, but I, again, I don't want to dwell too, too much on this. <clears throat> so Murphy, like I, I would also argue, and like uh, Fetter uh, would argue, uh, also says that uh, the best way to conceive uh, intellectually for analytical purposes, the best way to conceive of interest is, uh, as I put the next block, the rate of return on intertemporal monetary investment. So, so we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But I, I would just quickly mention these others, right? So you see these others that Bumbavrk uh, deals with uh, some of these, right? The exploitation theory. So, so once again, this is a surplus of money receipts over money payments, right? That, that's what's being explained here. That's the interest rate, or, or that's the surplus. The gap is that difference between uh, the money uh, uh, used to buy uh, inputs and the uh, money price received for outputs. And of course, this is done by paying labor-only subsistence wages, right? It's the labor <laughs> theory of value. Uh, position. The Marshallian theory tries, is explaining the monetary rate of return. So remember there, like you would find in a principles book that you know, first exposes students to the interest rates, the loanable funds market. And so you've got uh, savers who have time preference on the one side, and then you have uh, entrepreneurs who are demanders of the, of the saving on the other side. And their demand is based upon the, uh, their uh, calculations of the rate of return in different projects. And so they borrow money as long as they think the rate of return on the particular project would be greater than what they have to pay in interest to get the, uh, to get the funds. <clears throat> uh, the weighting theory uh, argues that uh, the interest rate is just a uh, price for a factor of production. And this factor of production is called weighting. Again, it's in scare quotes because uh, by weighting, they mean lending present money. <laughs> so it's sort of... <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. That's just <laughs> aren't you just saying the same thing? Then uh, isn't isn't this uh, theory just uh, saying the same thing as you know other theories, which just say people have a preference for lending present money and call this waiting if you want, but it doesn't seem to advance us very far. But in any case, the, the, my point is that they conceive of this differently, right? This is just a this is just a uh, factor payment. Anything different about it than payment to wages, to labor, rents to land, and so on. <clears throat> and so now we get down to uh, what I would consider the, the correct view, or the time preference view at least, uh, the rate of return on intertemporal monetary investment. So here the uh, time preference theory, of course, says that the interest rate is the premium of present money over future money. Now here again, let me mention uh, Professor Murphy uh, uh, since he also claims that that's what the interest rate is. In other words, he's just doing the same thing that we're doing. He's saying, just look in the world and see what people are doing. Just, we want a realist analysis, right? Just look at what they're doing. What are they doing? And the answer is they're lending present money and <laughs> they're paying back future. They're just trading present money. They're not trading present goods or, uh, uh, you know, or anything else uh, directly, right? What they're doing is trading present money for future money. And so that's what we want to explain. What's the demand and supply there? What, how does the market clear? And so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, uh, again, I'm not going to go into this in great detail. But, uh, it's, uh, we could get bogged down in some of the details. I just want to provide kind of a framework here for thinking about all these issues. Uh, Professor Murphy then argues this. He says the reason why people prefer present money to future money is liquidity preference. They have a preference for liquidity. And they have this preference, again, in kind of a standard Austrian way of thinking about it, because holding money balances allows us to deal with uncertainty. Now, hopefully, this uh, already raises all sorts of questions in your mind, right? And, and I'll mention a few as we go through, but I've organized this in a particular way. I don't want to get uh, uh, sidetracked uh, by talking about it now. I only want to make this point. If you hold that view, 
then interest is not a general phenomenon. Interest can only be a phenomenon where people are in a setting where they can hold cash balances. But whatever else we might say about this view. So, for example, uh, this, uh, this uh, view, uh, there could be no interest, no discounting of the future in any autistic economy. Not in a Caruso economy, there could be no interest uh, discounting, right? I'm not saying there's a rate of interest in Caruso, I'm saying there's a discount. There would be no discount, though, according to Murphy's theory, because there's no liquidity preference, so there's no interest. There's no time preference here. Right? He's not saying, <laughs> or at least, at, least, at least it isn't obvious as to how he would integrate time preference into his theory. If liquidity preference determines interest, then what does time preference do? And how do they relate? And so on. So this is what I'm pointing out, right? I'm just saying there's more work that needs to be done. If you're going to take this view, it's, uh, it seems inadequate as, as it's been developed so far. <clears throat> uh, by the way, this would also mean, uh, what, I, what I'm getting at in particular is, this would also mean that Caruso would have no way to allocate his resources intertemporally. That, that's the problem, right? How do you explain that if the interest rate is determined by liquidity preference and not time preference? How is that done? Uh, now, uh, now we get to uh, Guido Holtzman, so my last one, the rate of return on, I, I've said it this way, the rate of return on human action. Uh, so Professor Holtzman uh, argues that the interest rate is the uh, uh, difference between the money value of attaining an end and the money value of the means that a person applies to the attainment of that end. Not, not what they pay for it, but the money value that they assess in using the means to attain that end. We'll get, we'll get to the definitions here a little bit more clearly in a minute. Right? So it's a different conception that there's a value gap between the ends a person achieves with means and the value the person places on the collection of means in the attainment of that end, not in alternative use, but in the attainment of that same end. So, uh, so Professor Holtzman says the uh, interest rate must be the monetary value, uh, right? So he, he's got this conception too. It's a monetary sums, uh, the difference between uh, the value of the uh, monetary value of the means and the monetary value of the end. Now, I organize things this way just to point out that these last two are, uh, or at least on the face of it, are both theories that are based on fundamental facts of human action. They share that, whereas these other views do not. And, and we'll, we'll, I'll give you an idea of what I mean as we go. And, and secondly, they share another feature, which is both of these theories um, are universal. They, they apply in every case where there's intertemporal trade of money, or any case, for Guido, it's even more uh, general, right? Any case of human action whatsoever, there would be interest. There would be this value gap. This is what he's claiming. So these are both general theories, whereas where these other theories are not general. Right? They explain only some, some cases of what we would think of as interest. <clears throat> uh, okay, so let's, uh, let's go on and look at uh, the fundamental cause of interest. Again, just for clarification, uh, help clarify what we're speaking about here. So this is Bumbav work. He says, present goods have in general greater subjective value than future goods of equal quality and quantity. In general, they do. So there can be exceptions, right? There, so it's just a matter of uh, the person's place and time, the circumstances, the action. We could come up with cases where uh, a person doesn't have time preference in this sense, right? They don't prefer uh, present goods from future goods. So, so, so again, he's saying that it is true that interest uh, stems out of our uh, judgments of value of things. But, but it's not apodictic, it, it's not, it's not uh, a necessary feature of human action, it just, it's just a general <coughs> principle. Uh, again, just as an aside, th this is uh, what uh, Professor Murphy claims and others have claimed about Frank Fetter, that even though he has the, the Mises notion of time preference that, that, that I've got up on the slide, uh, Fetter also thinks, or at least these scholars claim, that Fetter thinks that um, it's just kind of a general tendency and it could be otherwise, right? It's not, it's not apodictic, it's not, it's not in the logic of acting itself. 
Uh, okay, so that, that's not true of uh, Professor Holtzman. Holtzman's idea of the uh, cause of interest and interest is in the nature of human action itself. It couldn't be otherwise. Every action must involve this value spread. This is what he claimed, no exceptions. So originary interest is the fundamental spread between the value of an end and the value of the means that serve to attain that end. And he doesn't mean in alternative uses. He means in that use, right? So again, we'll get to that, explore that a little bit as we go. And then I pulled this quote from, uh, from Mises. Uh, this is the time preference view, right, uh, that we see expressed uh, in Mises. Okay, so satisfaction of a want in a nearer future is other things being equal preferred to that in the farther distant future. So we've got a given satisfaction that can be either attained sooner or later. We prefer sooner. And again, Mises would argue that this is apodictic. There's no exception to that. This is just, uh, this springs right out of what we mean by human action uh, fundamentally. That once we recognize what human action is, we see this right away. It's just uh, sort of a, an immediate uh, conclusion that we can arrive at about about human action. And I will, before we go on, I, I will say that um, that there's textual uh, evidence in Mises and Rothbard as well uh, that, that sort of blurs this. It isn't clear. So, you know, again, uh, Professor Murphy, Murphy finds you know, various passages, you could find these in human action and man economy state, where it, it, it doesn't seem like that's how they're defining uh, the fundamental cause of interest as a satisfaction comparison. And then there are other passages that do seem to indicate this. So, uh, so that, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to clear up. Can, can we clear that up right? and uh, come to some more definitive claim about uh, these basic uh, points? <clears throat> um, let me, uh, let me uh, just give you a heads up about what we'll talk about in respect to that. Um, Professor, both Professor Holtzman and Professor Murphy, Murphy claim that Mises proves the existence of time preference in this sense through an argument that is based upon the, the act of consumption. And, and we'll talk more about this as we go. But if that's true, if, if it's something that can only be proved by an act of consumption, well, then it's not, it's not a fundamental thing, right? Because not every action is consumption. Not, uh, uh, this is something else then. And I'm claiming that's not right. I'm not saying that necessarily that Mises is making the same claim I'm making. I'm saying I think we can formulate time preference in a way where it is fundamental in the same way that uh, Professor Holtzman's claim is fundamental, more fundamental than some think. Uh, okay, so this is what uh, this is what I'm referring to. So let's just think about the the fundamental principle involved. And I would put it this way. Again, this is just my own formulation, but uh, you, you can think this through yourself and uh, see what you, the conclusion you come to about it. So in a causal realist analysis, we start with the human person and the human condition. And we, we give a descriptive account of it. What is a human person? Well, with respect to human action. What, what, is, what are the characteristics of the human person? Okay, so we start with a bunch of things I don't have on the slide, right? Purposeful behavior, right? we have, a, we have a intentions and will. Um, we have intellect, right? so we can, we can perceive cause and effect structures in the world. It must be that this intellect is, corresponds somehow to the actual world itself, so that we're, you know, it, uh, we can see different modes of action and whether they'd be efficacious in attaining our ends and so on and so forth, all sorts of this right, uh, that we would unpack at the beginning of our discussion uh, when we start into economics in the causal realist tradition. <clears throat> uh, what I want to focus on then is the sort of next step once we, or, or to move to what uh, will be the next step by recognizing that uh, also involved in human existence is the condition of us being finite beings. We're finite, right? That is to say, just because we formulate an end in our mind, we cannot, therefore, just will it to occur. In other words, we make a distinction between ends and means. This is a necessary feature. This is a fundamental feature of human life. This, by the way, is not true of infinite beings. God need make no distinction between ends and means when God engages in action because he can just will anything he wants to occur. 
Right? There's no, this isn't necessary for him to do. I mean, he might do it as a kind of a game or something, but he doesn't have to do it. We have to, right? This is, we, we couldn't, do, it, we couldn't uh, do without this. We couldn't be otherwise. <laughs> if we distinguish between ends and means and we're purposeful, this is where Professor Holtzman then uh, uh, derives the conclusion that we must value the attainment of the end more than we value the means that we apply to the attainment of the end. That's a conclusion that he deduces from, that, that's not a descriptive feature of the action, right? That's a conclusion he deduces from this descriptive account of what a human person is. By the way, just to reinforce that, if uh, that sounds a little odd, this is what we do with the regular uh, laws of a utility that we deduce from, or, or that we say are you know, laws of utility about human action. We, we deduce those from scarcity, right? <coughs> the two laws of utility. These aren't uh, descriptive features of action. These are conclusions that we deduce. So that's what, that's what Professor Holtzman means. I think this is how we should understand what he means when he says that the value spread is fundamental. Yes, it is fundamental, but it's still a deduction from a more fundamental uh, set of propositions. That, that is actually sort of important, <laughs> even though it seems like an like a arcane point to make. Uh, it's important because when we go into the second uh, uh, point about us being temporal, that's where Mises begins or where Fetter begins, uh, we want to see the same pattern. That's what I'm trying to, uh, to, to show. <laughs> so uh, when, when, when a being is temporal, then the being distinguishes between different moments in time. These will be just, just, just descriptively. As human beings, we, we know that there's one moment in time and then there's you know, a different moment in time a week from now a month from now, and so on and so forth. We make that distinction. Again, an eternal being doesn't need to do this. An eternal being stands outside of time, doesn't need to say, well, there's all these different moments in time. And, no, no. Right? And as a temporal being, we also, we also distinguish between sooner and later. Right? Not, this isn't the same distinction as the distinction between different moments in time. There's you know, the first day of the week, second day of the week, third day of the week. We also distinguish between structuring actions so that we either start sooner and end later the action, or we you know, start at a later moment and then, and then we, we shrink, we, we attain our end sooner. Right? That's also a, a choice parameter for us. <laughs> and so there, uh, we, we just want to integrate, this is just again a descriptive fact of human condition. And we want to integrate this into purposefulness and intelligence and all the things that we already have, just like uh, Professor Holtzman would do with the value spread, or that we would do right with the, with the idea of uh, laws of utility. We just want to deduce something from this. What, what do we deduce? Well, we deduce two things, actually, uh, two valuations of action with respect to time. The first is that a person will pay attention to the different value that would accrue to the same action if taken at different moments in time. That, that now becomes a choice variable for a person. And other things equal, of course, a person will uh, place in time actions according to whether they have more value at that moment or more value at a different moment. So that, that becomes a law of uh, utility, a temporal law of utility. Right? This is what Fetter calls time value, the time value of an action or a good. <laughs> and then there's time preference, the one we're more familiar with. So a sooner satisfaction of a given end is preferred to a later satisfaction of the same end. Notice this is a satirist paribus claim. We're, we're conceptually holding the end the same, or the satisfaction the same. But so are the, so are the laws of utility. They're satirist paribus too. So there's nothing unusual about, you know, it's not, we, we don't call the laws of utility, you know, less fundamental because they're satirist paribus. Or, or as Professor Holtzman likes to say, they're uh, conditional. <clears throat> okay, so now, now that I've sort of laid this out, let me, um, let me provide some textual reference um, just to show that, yes, indeed, both Rothbard and Mises um, have this view in their, in their writings. <clears throat> uh, by the way, uh, again, uh, 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 Professor Mur Murphy uh, disputes that he, he, he says that this, he holds the view that Mises and Rothbard accept the Bumbab work 
definition of time preference. It's, a, it's a, uh, a preference for present goods relative to future goods. And then he finds you know, places where they say this, and then, but he ignores the places where they, uh, Rothbard and Mises make uh, more uh, basic claims about satisfactions. And so again, this is an important point to bring up in, in the debate. So anyway, this is the uh, first section of chapter five in Man, Economy, and State. And uh, Rothbard lists out some, what he calls some fundamental principles of human action. And you can see the number one that I've listed is the uh, uh, law of utility right? uh, of uh, the value gap, uh, I should say, uh, in, in action. So the psychic profit, as uh, Rothbard called it, in action. And then the third one, the one I, it's labeled, he labels three, is what he calls the law of time preference. This is the law of time preference, right? That every person prefers and will attempt to achieve a satisfaction of a given end in the present to that satisfaction in the future. So he does define it as a satisfaction, right? Not, not in terms of goods, but in the satisfaction that the goods give. That, that's the important uh, distinction. <clears throat> so I, once again, I would say, well, okay, we can start from that point. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Mises and Rothbard uh, are absolved from some ambiguity or something like this or anything of the sort. I'm saying this is the better way to look at it. That's all I'm saying. That this is the way we should look at it in the debate in order to sort of clarify things so that we can actually move forward and have some resolution to, to what, what's, uh, what's at stake in this. Uh, okay, so now let's go on to uh, Mises. Here's Mises. So Mises says this, uh, time for man is not a homogeneous substance of which only length counts. It's not a more or less in dimension. It's an irreversible flux, the fractions of which appear in different perspectives according to whether they are nearer to or remoter from uh, the instant evaluation and decision. Satisfaction of a want in the nearer future is other things being equal, preferred to that in the farther distant future. See there, he's sort of showing how he reasons to time preference from this more fundamental point, right? which is that time is to us as an irreversible flux. And, and we can't do anything in an irreversible flux except place our action in the stream of time. That's what, that's what we can do. And we have different, uh, we can value the different alternatives open to us in timing our action and, and placing it in the stream of time. That is to say, starting the action at one point and finishing it another, or starting the action at one point and finishing later. Right? Those, those will give us different results, and we have to value the, the difference between them. Right? But then he goes on, uh, Mises goes on, and here's the ambiguity, right? Now, again, I would, I would read Mises more charitably and say, given his definition, then, then this follows. Given that he's t he, he, this is a satyr's paribus condition, he's just saying, suppose the satisfaction given by these goods is the same sooner as it is later, then, well, then present goods are more valuable than future goods. If you take that, that claim in isolation, that's, that's wrong. That, 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 that you, 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 th then you get all the problems that uh, Professor Mur Murphy has uh, written you know, extensively about. Right? You get all sorts of difficulties if you start at that point. <laughs> but I, my view is that Mises did not start at that point. And even if he did, again, my, my position would be, okay, he made a mistake. We, we don't, you know, right? And, uh, and, uh, and we, we can correct it. We can see how to correct it. He's guided us to see how to correct it. And we can correct it and then start from there. And this is a better uh, path forward than the one that we've taken uh, so far. Uh, okay, so that's, uh, that's that part. Now, now let's turn, uh, before I go back to the kind of debate, uh, criticisms that are made of this uh, Mises and others, I also want to uh, turn the tables and talk about this, uh, this claim, uh, the causal realist foundation that uh, Professor Holtzman uh, claims for his view. <clears throat> so this is how he defines it and sets it, puts it in the setting, right? He says, we are thus in a position to give a realist definition of originary interest, which is a phenomenon that lies at the heart of all manifestations of interest on the market and in any other form of social organization. Originary interest is the fundamental spread between the value of an end and the value of the means that serve to attain this end. Right? That, that's how he defines it. And then he, in his paper, of course, he says that it's just sort of self-evident to him that there is this value difference. It's just sort of obvious to him that there is such a value difference. 
Um, uh, the first thing I want to point out, though, is that this is no more fundamental. This claim is no more fundamental than the Misesian time preference claim. They both stand in the, in the order of logic in the same place. We start with the most fundamental descriptive accounts of human behavior, and then we deduce certain things. And this is a, this is a very early deduction. Right? We get to this point e either way, we, it, right, at, uh, right at the beginning of our analysis, just like we do the laws of utility, right? It's something we get to right away. But aside from that, they're, they're not, one's not more fundamental than the other, I, I would say, anyway. <clears throat> now, uh, here's a Mises on this value spread. Interestingly, Mises has a passage in Human Action where he pronounces his opinion about this value spread. And he says this, valuation can only arrange goods in scales of preference. It can never attach to a good something that could be called a quantity or magnitude of value. It would be absurd to speak of a summation of value, uh, valuation or values. It is permissible to declare that due allowance being made for time preference, the value attached to the product is equal to the value of the total complex of the complementary factors of production. Okay. Now, Professor Holtzman says, uh, no, 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 you can't say that. You can't say that that's a violation of the subjectivity of value if you say these things are equal. <coughs> and so, so Professor Holtzman sort of dismisses this. <clears throat> but I think that's not, that's not the point. That, that, that's not the point in the debate, whether you can say this or not. Again, I would read this charitably to Mises and say, he, this is just a kind of throwaway comment, right? He's just saying it's permissible to do this. He's not saying, you know, we need to do this in order to derive these particular theories from it. You know, it's, uh, yeah, in, in most cases, we can't equate subjective values, but here we can do it. And he's not saying anything like that. He's just saying, you know, it's permissible to do this. It's, it's okay to say this. Nothing's at stake if we say this. <laughs> but actually, of course, uh, my point is entirely different. I, we don't need to get into that debate. My point simply is that Mises disagrees with, with Holtzman. He just disagrees, right? He doesn't think there is a value difference, uh, this value spread. He doesn't think it exists. So, so it's not self-evident that this value difference exists. It, this is an open, debatable uh, claim. <clears throat> um, okay, so let's look at this a little bit more carefully. What about the value spread? What, what, what do we know about the value spread? What have we already deduced in economic theory about this value spread between ends and means? Well, of course, we've already dealt with this with the, the quote from Rothbard. Um, uh, we usually think about this uh, as the spread between the value of the end uh, attained or striven for and the alternative use of the means to, to attain an alternative lower ranked end. And we say there's the value spread, and this value spread we, is profit. Not interest, right, but profit. It's psychic profit. <clears throat> but Professor Holtzman is saying there's another value difference, or maybe it's embedded in that bigger value difference. Again, he doesn't really spell this out. Uh, between the value of the end and the value of the means as the person perceives them in the attainment of that end, not in the alternative, but in that end, right? So it would be interesting for Professor Holtzman to work that out. How are these value spreads related? How does profit and interest relate? Do they overlap? Are they separable? You know, what's going on here? That would be a somewhat good exercise, I think, uh, so that we could have something to talk about. So we could, we could right, see the, where this theory leads and, and uh, uh, whether we think those conclusions uh, uh, can be justified. <clears throat> Uh, and I want to deal with one other point that uh, Professor Holtzman makes uh, that uh, bears upon the, the way in which he conceives of this value spread. Uh, he says that his claim about this value spread is superior logically in the structure of economic analysis. It's superior to the claim about the preference for sooner over later because the preference for sooner over later is just a conjecture. It's not demonstrable in action. It's just a conjecture. It's a Sater's Paribus claim, right? We're not, we, don't, <laughs> we don't actually uh, see the alternative. It's just, it's just, as he puts it, one good in two alternatives, one of which is conjectural and not realized, right? <clears throat> but I think this, this, he misfires here, right? Uh, because his value spread is also conjectural. W where's the alternative action uh, that values, that allows us to value or the person to value independently the use of the means in the attainment of that end. 
that there doesn't seem to be a, anything but a conjectural alternative, right? What, what does he mean by this? Does he mean holding the, the means? Is, is that where they're valued and there's a spread between that and the attainment of the end? It's not what he says exactly. So again, it, I'm, not, I'm not denying he might have an answer to this. I just, we'd like to know, right? We'd, we'd like to see this worked out a little bit so that we can get more meat on the bones of the debate. Uh, it, it seems, though, it, uh, to me, that uh, he can't have it both ways here. I don't think this is uh, an effective uh, claim that he makes against the uh, time preference view. Uh, to follow up on this, or just to make a, a further point that he, he uh, discusses, he says uh, that interest theory, in his view, interest theory must explain the relationship between two actions, the buying of inputs and the selling of outputs. So notice already he's gone from having a general theory to a specific claim, right? He, th this again is not, I don't think this is right. I think he's, uh, he's shifting ground here. Um, and, and then he says, well, you see, the time preference theory is no good because the time preference theory only explains one action, the, the saving, right? One, the giving up of present money for uh, the attainment of future money, <clears throat> uh, which is either taken sooner or later. So it's just a single action taken sooner or later. Uh, but again, my response to that is, as long as you think of interest in terms of present money versus future money, then there's no inconsistency here. You, you have the same good, you have one good, in two alternative actions, you can keep your money or you can lend it. And one of the uh, alternatives is conjectural. So, so it seems like uh, Professor Holtzman is doing the same thing in his theory. Right? Unless, again, he resorts to goods, uh, that, that it has to be embodied, this trade between present and future has to be embodied in goods, not in money, but in goods. Well, if he says that, then we're just back to the old uh, points of debate, right? We're, we, we, now we're just off track, and we're back to um, wrangling about things that uh, shouldn't distract us, that we should be able to move uh, past. <clears throat> I would say there are also some unresolved issues. I, I've mentioned a few of these already, but here are a few more. Um, how does the value spread exactly logically imply demand for and supply of present money? Which, which remember, is how uh, uh, Professor Holtzman defines interest. He, he's with us on that uh, claim. H how does it do that? Where's the where's the step-by-step -step demonstration of this? How does the market clear? What uh, how is it that um, uh, this uh, view explains consumer loans? If he says it has to be the purchase of producer goods and then the selling of output, how would his view of the value spread explain consumer loans? That m must there not be a value spread in consumer loans? Well, yes, he says. It's a general principle of all action. But th there's no buying of inputs and selling of outputs there. So what? So how does that work? Why is that okay and not okay for the time preference theory, but seems to be you know okay for his? Um, how does it how does it uh, deal with uh, the intertemporal dimensions of th that are dealt with in a time preference theory? How does it explain the yield curve? How would this value spread explain <coughs> the yield curve? Or to put it uh, more succinctly. Isn't there a value spread on a spot exchange, a cash exchange? Is there interest on a cash exchange? Well, if not, why not? Why wouldn't there be an interest return on a cash exchange? There's a value spread because Professor Holtzman says there's a value spread on all action. Not, not just exchange, but all action. Well, there must be a, a value spread on a, on a spot exchange. And therefore, there, there should be monetary interest on that spot exchange. Or, or at least if there isn't, what's the explanation of why not? Okay, maybe there is an explanation. Again, we'd like to see that sort of worked out so that we could grapple with, uh, with the claims that he's making. <clears throat> I would say, by the way, the same thing about uh, Professor Murphy's theory. How, how does liquidity preference explain the intertemporal aspects of action that are explained by time preference? Is it that you bring time preference back in somehow and put them together or, yeah, we don't, well, we don't know. We don't, uh, we don't have an answer to that. We don't have anything to grapple with in debate, but 
So what I'm saying is simply that these views uh, so far are just incomplete, right? We'd like more. We'd like to see how it's worked out. Uh, there are unresolved uh, issues involved. <clears throat> and then the, the last thing I'll have time to do uh, is to get to this uh, question of the, uh, uh, the ambiguity of the definitions of terms and so on. So I want to address that uh, in, the, in the last step here. So in order to do that, I've divided up the material this way. Um, I think in, it's helpful to think of it this way. We can give definitions of time preference, and then we can see implications of it. And by looking at that distinction, I think it's clarifying with respect to thinking out whether this is an irresolvable difficulty in Mises' work. So as I've already pointed out then, my position is that uh, the definition, the proper definition is in terms of the given satisfaction preferred sooner to the same satisfaction later. Uh, freely admitting that this is a conjecture or Sater's Paribus claim, however you want to uh, say this, that this is deduced, not, not the most fundamental principle, but it's a principle deduced uh, from a more fundamental set of principles. And so it's a, it's a law of uh, utility, if you, if you wish to put it that way, a law of time preference, as Rothbard put it. <clears throat> and that the, uh, the uh, truth of, uh, of a law like this does not depend upon being demonstrated in action. We, we, we don't prove the law of uh, first law of utility uh, by watching to see if it's demonstrated in action. We know that it won't always be demonstrated in action, right? Because action is caused by the complex set of causal factors overall, and it doesn't isolate one by one. And so what uh, this way of approaching the time preference uh, aspect of action is doing is isolating the intertemporal aspect, right? And that's what we're doing uh, in this. Okay, so uh, once again, I would say that this is the same, the same point uh, could be brought to bear upon uh, Professor Holtzman's view. And then I would say that these quotes, which are brought forward by uh, Professor Holtzman and Professor Murphy to say that, well, actually, uh, Mises is deriving time preference for some later consideration like consumption or that um, uh, it's uh, not a fundamental principle in terms of uh, value, but it's somehow bound up in goods or something like this. I've given these examples with the bold, uh, the key, right? So the first one says, the fact that men do not act this way evidences that they value fractions of time of the same length in different ways according to whether they're near or motor uh, from the instant of the actor's decision. Other things being equal, satisfaction in near period of the future is preferred to satisfaction in a more distant period. You see what he's saying, I, at least I understand what he's saying here. He's saying that the fact that people act in this particular way is an implication of time preference in their minds. It's not, it's not that you're sort of proving that people have time preference because they act this way. That's not, that's not what Mises is saying. He's saying if you, if you conceive of people having time preference, then this is evidence, the way they act is evidence that they have time preference. Now again, I might be wrong about this. It's not my intention to defend Mises. I, he may be wrong. Maybe uh, Professor Murphy's right about this. I'm just saying that uh, if you read it a little bit more charitably, I'm not sure Mises is really uh, saying what, uh, what some of them are saying against him. Uh, the second one says, he who consumes, notice he's speaking about actions and goods here. He who consumes a non-perishable good instead of postponing consumption for an indefinite later moment thereby reveals, reveals a higher value, right? So we don't prove the first law of utility by how a person acts, right? We, in fact, we don't even prove the principle of preference generally by saying, well, it's demonstrated in action. No, 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 we say a person has preference and then an implication of this is that their action is always consistent with their preference. You see, I think Mises is doing the same thing here. When he talks about goods and actions, he just says people's actions and the use of their goods reveal their time preference. He's not proving time preference from consumption here. And then this, uh, this next one says, here, here notice he switches to uh, uh, satisfaction. And he says, the very act of gratifying a desire implies, uh, that's stronger, implies that gratification at the present instance is preferred to that at a later instance. So there he is saying, I'm deriving, 
I'm, I'm generating that as an implication, right? But, but here he's working with uh, uh, satisfactions that he, by uh, construction, is holding the same. So, of course, yeah, that, that follows, right? It would follow. The logic would be reversible then because the conditions are met, <clears throat> or so I would say. And then one last one to wrap up. Um, uh, and Pro Professor Holzman uh, also criticizes Mises for this. Um, Pro Professor Holzman's criticism is Mises just assumes that $104 a year from now is the same good as $100 now, but he says that future goods and present goods are different goods. And so there's some kind of a weird uh, logical problem there. But I don't, again, you know, maybe you can read Mises's quote that way. I would read it more charitably this way. Uh, well, let's just read it. And then uh, those contesting the universal validity of time preference fail to explain why a man does not always invest a sum of $100 today, although these $100 would increase to 104 in a year's time. So what he's saying is, isn't it obvious that if you gave a person the option between $100 in his hand right now and $104 in his hand right now, he'd take the $104? Because more of a good is always preferred to less. Isn't this a basic law of action? Well, what if, what if, uh, what if the offer for $104 was tomorrow? Would the person still take the $104? How about if it was a week from now? How about a, how about a year from now? You see, you see that, that kind of argumentation requires you to assume the condition that the good is the same, that $104 is always 4% more purchasing power than $100. Otherwise, the, the, it does, right? It, uh, Professor Holzman's right. It doesn't make any sense to argue this way if you say, well, $104 is a totally different good. But you see the power of that argument, right? He's saying, look, there's some point, you can think this through yourself. There's some point a year from now, would you take $104? 10 years from now, would you take the $104? No, no, I wouldn't take the $104 10 years from now to $100 today. I'd take the $100 today. You see, there's some point at which your time preference, you reveal your own time preference by thinking out this problem. And I think that's, that's basically what Mises is doing. Well, I have some more stuff. Uh, maybe the PowerPoint's available, and, uh, and you can, you can uh, look at that. But uh, at this point, I'll stop. Thanks for your kind attention.